Amen. All right, well, we're there in Second uh, Samuel chapter number 22. And if you remember, uh, well, last week uh, we weren't in our Second Samuel series because we had uh, Pastor Manly Perry with us. And, uh, but the week before that, we were in Second Samuel 22. And you might remember that we went through, and we didn't go through the chapter. We just studied this idea in this chapter, this theme in the chapter about the Lord our rock. And we saw uh, all the correlations between Christ and God, and we saw all the different things there. Uh, tonight, we're gonna, I'm going to do the best we can to get through the entire chapter, and I want to show you in this chapter that there is a theme. There is a theme in this chapter that has to do with end times. This, this uh, song, uh, the 2 Samuel 22 is actually a psalm. If you go to, and you don't have to do this now, but if you go to the book of Psalms and you look at Psalm 18, it's almost word for word the exact same psalm. This is a song that David wrote. If you look at verse 1, it says, And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song uh, in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hands of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. So this is a song or a psalm that he wrote. It would be like a hymn that you and I would sing in church, but it's a song. But here's what I want you to know. It's a prophetic song. It, it has to do with end times. And there's three end times characteristics. I'm sorry, there's four end times characteristics in this psalm that I, I, I want to show you tonight. And, you know, on Wednesday nights, we call this Bible study. And on Wednesday nights, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. We're in 2 Samuel 22. We've, been, we've, we've spent, spent the last several months going through every chapter of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And what I want to say tonight is that tonight will be very much a Bible study. Uh, so I want you to be ready. We're going to flip to a lot of places. We're going to compare a lot of scriptures. We're going to study the Bible in regards to this idea of end times and the prophecy of end times found in this song. This is an end times song. It's an end times song. So I want you to notice the context in which it was written. Look at verse 1 again. And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies. Notice the last part of verse 1. And out of the hand of Saul. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the fact that at the end of the book of 2 Samuel, the chapters are no longer in chronological order. We basically ended with the story of Absalom and, 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 and all of those things there. And then we kind of just have some uh, things tagged on at the end, things that God felt that he wanted to have in the book. And, th and this is a song that was written when David was saved out of the hand of Saul. That was all the way before he was king. So it's not in chronological order. But I want you to understand the context. The context in which David is writing this prophetic psalm tells a lot about the end times. Because here you have David who pictures the believer, and we'll see uh, here in this psalm, he pictures both the believers and, and Christ, and we, and we have him under persecution of King Saul, because that's basically what Saul was doing. He was persecuting David. Remember, David had to leave town, and David had to run. He was, he was hunted like a dog by Saul, who represents what? The government, it represents the, the, the kingdom there of this world. So that's the context in which this psalm was written. For those of you taking notes, if you'd like to write down uh, some points tonight. I'd like you to notice the first uh, thing that we see, kind of the prophetic picture we see here, is that we see the return. We see the return, and we see the return of Christ. Look at verse number 2 there, Second Samuel 22 and verse 2. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, and I want you to notice these two words, my deliverer. He says, my deliverer. David begins this psalm by and, and keep in mind, whenever you have a prophetic type writing, it, it never lines up 100%. Some of the stuff applies to David right then and there. Some of it is 
future. But there's this picture here. He has to make this picture. He's talking about believers. So he does that. Now, I want you to understand, David was not saved at this time. David was already saved. He was already a believer. But I want you to notice the emphasis that he puts in the first uh, four verses of this psalm. He says at the end of verse 2, my deliverer. Look at verse 3. The God of my rock. Notice this phrase. In him will I trust. In him will I trust. That The idea there is that of faith. Because faith is basically trust. When I place my faith in Christ to save me, what I'm doing is I'm trusting him to save me. So it's not just that I'm believing in someone. Like It's not just that you believe that Jesus existed and that makes you saved. But the fact that you place your faith, your trust in him, those ideas are connected. So he says, the God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield, the horn of my, notice the next word, salvation. You see that? The horn of my salvation, my high tower, and my refuge, my savior. Notice, notice the emphasis. My savior, thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord. Now, again, he's already saved spiritually, and he's talking about being saved physically, but there's this idea that is being emphasized. He says, I will call on the Lord. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Part of salvation is calling on the Lord to save you. And he says, I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be, notice the emphasis, saved from mine enemies. So we have David here who pictures a believer, someone who's saved, someone who's called on the Lord. But I want you to notice this believer is in trouble. This believer is in the midst of affliction or trials. Look at verse 5. He says, when the waves of death, now I want you to notice this word, compass. Okay, the word compass means to surround. He said, when the waves of death surrounded me, they compassed me. The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. Look at verse 6. The sorrows of hell, notice this word, compassed, surrounded me about. The snares of death prevented me. Now keep your place there in 2 Samuel 22. And I'd like you to go with me to the book of Luke real quickly. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament. And let's, let's look at some cross-references. And here's what I want you to understand about this, this, this psalm. It doesn't seem prophetic at first. The, 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 the further down you go, the better it gets as far as the connections that are made. So it's actually like he starts off with the weakest evidence and it gets stronger and stronger, which is fine with me. But because uh, I, I like to kind of preach that way anyway, I like to hold the, the best points to the end. You know, the best sermon is always the last one of the series or whatever it might be. So we kind of see that idea there. But I want you to notice that here you have David who's in Jerusalem, who's the king of Israel. And he's, he's saying, I'm compassed about the waves of death compass me. The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compass me about. Luke 21, look at verse number 20. Now do me a favor, when you get to Luke, put a bulletin or a ribbon or a bookmark or something there in Luke because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it and we're going to come back to it throughout the sermon. So I want you to be able to get to it through, uh, through the sermon tonight. Luke 21. Now Luke 21 is, is the passage that's known as the Olivet Discourse. This is when the Lord Jesus Christ on, the Mount, uh, on Mount Olive basically gave his sermon about the end times and gave us the outline about the end times. And notice what he says in Luke 21 and verse 20. He says, and when ye shall see Jerusalem, notice this word, compassed with armies, surrounded with armies, then know ye that the desolation thereof 
is nice. I want you to notice we have David who pictures the believer and David who's in trouble. He's compassed about. And here we're told about believers in Jerusalem that are compassed about during the great tribulation period. Go back. Keep your place there in Luke. Go back to 2 Samuel 22. Look at verse 7. 2 Samuel 22. Look at verse 7. Notice what he does in the midst of, of this tribulation and trial. Verse 7, he says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. And by the way, the Bible teaches that we must call upon the Lord to be saved. I believe that. There are people today that teach that, you know, you don't have to call on the Lord and you don't, you know, uh, I don't know how you get away from this idea. It's all throughout the Bible. From Genesis through, throughout the entire Bible, you find the idea that to be saved, you call upon the Lord. And to me, you know, the idea is this. If someone says, I believe, but I don't want to call, I just think to myself, then you must not believe. I mean, if you're, if you're just like, well, I believe it. I just don't want to ask him for it. Well, then you've got a bad attitude, you know. Then you need to fix your attitude. Then you need to humble yourself. The only reason you wouldn't want to call on God to save you and ask him to save you is if you obviously weren't humble, you know. So this, when people ask me stupid questions about, well, you know, somebody wrote some stupid email to me about so they got saved, you know. They're like, some, if someone gets saved and they're walking down the road and they accidentally fall off a cliff, but they never had the chance to call, you know, and it's like, shut up. You know, it's like you sound like the Pharisees, you know, when they're coming to Jesus and they're like, there was a, bro- there was a man that had, you know, there was a woman that had seven brothers and he, she married all of them and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, look, just call on the Lord. All right. But here's what I want you to understand. We don't just call on the Lord to be saved. We call on the Lord the entire time we're saved. If you study the life of Abraham, you'll notice that he called upon the name of the Lord there in Genesis 12. But then later on in his life, he continues to call upon the Lord. So in here, you've got believers. Notice, uh, I got off on a rabbit trail. Look at verse 7. Is that where we were? Verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. Notice, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into uh, did enter into his ears. Look, 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 look at verse number 8. Then the earth shook and trembled. I want you to get this picture here. You've got a believer who's in trouble. You've got a believer who's surrounded, compassed about in distress and trials and tribulation. And he cries upon the Lord and he, and he asks God to deliver him. And then the Bible says, then the earth shook and trembled. Now let me just help you with Bible prophecy. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, and I, the first time I can think that this is mentioned in Scripture, I think it's the book of Judges. It's mentioned in Isaiah. It's mentioned in all the prophetic writings. It's mentioned in Revelation. Whenever you read, whenever you read in the Bible that the entire earth shook, all right, that ought to be a, uh, a, a clue to you that we are talking about end times, okay? Because this is what happens when the Lord returns. The second coming of Christ, the Bible says, well, look at verse 8, that the earth shook and trembled. The entire earth shook and trembled. We're not talking about a local earthquake, something that happens in California. We're talking about the entire world. Now, keep your place there in 2 Samuel 22. Go to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the, in the Bible. should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 6. Now, when you get there, do me a favor. Put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it. We're going to come back to it. We're going to come back to it throughout the passage tonight. So here's what you should have. You ought to have your place in 2 Samuel. You ought to have your place in Luke 21. And you ought to have your place in Revelation 6. We're going to cross-reference through all of those passages. And I hope I'm not confusing you too much, all right? 
uh, Luke 21, Revelation 6, and 2 Samuel 22. Revelation 6, look at verse 12. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Revelation 6 is the passage, is the chapter in Revelation that is describing the tribulation period, the, tri the, the tribulation period that's going to come upon this earth. Notice what the Bible says, 2 Samuel 22, 8. Then the earth shook and trembled. I'm sorry, uh, Revelation 6, 12. Revelation 6, 12, that's where you should be. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. You see that? He says, lo, there was a great earthquake. Now, I want you to notice, keep your, keep your place there, Revelation 6, 12. Go back to 2 Samuel 22. Look at verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. And, and another place, and, and we'll, 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 I think we'll read it here in a little bit, but throughout the book of Revelation, it tells us that when, this, when there's this great shaking of the earth, he says that the islands are moved. He, he's, in Isaiah, he tells us that there's nothing left on the earth that is upright. Every building, every fence, every monument comes bowing down to the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes upon this earth. Everything flattens as he comes uh, upon this earth. But I want you to notice what else happens. 2 Samuel 22, look at verse 8. Then the earth shook and trembled, but that's not it. The foundation of heaven moved and shook because he was wrought. Okay? So we're not just talking about the earth shaking. I think we all understand an earthquake. I'm not even sure what this means. But the Bible tells us over and over again that when God returns, when Christ returns, not only does the earth shake, but the heavens shake. There's, it's not an earthquake, it's a heaven shake. The foundations of the heaven uh, moved and shook because he was wroth. Now go back, uh, go back to Luke 21. Let, let's, let's look at this in order. Luke 21, look at verse number 25. So you need to have your place in Luke and in Revelation. Luke 21, look at verse number 25. Revelation 22, 8 tells us the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. Now, you could just say this is poetic writing. This is just, you know, David writing a nice, fancy song. But I, I don't think it is. I, I think he's writing about the end times. And I'll, I'll show you the, the, the similarities. Luke 21, look at verse 25. And there shall be signs in the sun. This is talking about the second coming of Christ. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. And upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Look at verse 26. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Notice, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. So in Luke 21, 26, we're told the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. In 2 Samuel 22, 8, we're told the foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wrought. So these, the characteristics of the coming back, the characteristics of the coming back of the Lord Jesus Christ are this. The earth shakes. The heavens shake. Let's look at it in Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 6. Keep your place in Luke. Keep your place in 2 Samuel. We're going to be comparing. Go to Revelation chapter 6. Look at verse 12. Notice how consistent the scripture is when it comes to the prophetic writings. Revelation 6. Look at verse 12. Revelation 6 verse 12. And I beheld... When he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. We saw that already. And then notice what it says. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Look at verse 13. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is 
Notice this word, shaken of a mighty wind. So here's what we're told. The stars fall, and he says they fall like the figs of a fig tree when you shake the tree. And here's what he's telling us, because it tells us in other places that the powers of heaven shall be shaken. The foundations of the heaven shall be moved and shook. And what he's telling us, he's going to shake the earth at his coming. He's going to shake the heavens at his coming, and he's going to shake it so hard that the sun is going to burn out. It's like a, a, like a light bulb. It's going to go out. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became as blood. And the stars even fall from heaven. That's what we're told. Go back to second. Keep your, all your places there. Go back to Second Samuel 22. Let me show you another characteristic, another qualification as to why I believe this psalm is an end time psalm. Psalm 22. Look at verse 9. Second Samuel 22. Excuse me. Second Samuel 22. Look at verse 9. There went up a smoke out of his nostril. The fire out of his nostrils devoured coals uh, were kindled by it. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but I want you to look at verse 10. He, you see the next word there? He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. He says that he bowed the heavens also. That word means to bend or curve, all right? When you bow something or bow it or bend it, it's talking about bending or curving. So what did he bend and curve? He he bowed the heavens also. So he bent or he curved the heavens at his coming. Go back to Revelation 6. Look at verse 14. Revelation chapter 6. Look at verse 14. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation 6 and verse 14. Notice what he says. And the heavens departed as a scroll. We sing this in our song, It Is Well, in the fourth uh, verse there of the song. He says, and the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. All right? So here we're told that when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, that he rolled the heavens like a scroll. In 2 Samuel 22, we're told that he bowed the heavens also, which means he bent them or curved them. Well, if you roll something into a scroll, what are you doing? You're curving it. You're bending it. This is all talking about the same event. He's talking about a day when he's going to shake the earth. He's talking about a day when he's going to shake the heavens. He, and then he's going to roll the heavens as a scroll. The Bible tells us in other places that he's going to remove the heavens as he comes down into this earth. Let me give you another uh, similarity. Go back to 2 Samuel 22. Look at verse 11. The Bible also tells us much about how the, what the Lord is writing. He is writing certain things as he comes down. I want you to notice what it says in 2 Samuel 22 in verse number 11. It says this, And he rode upon a cherub and did fly, and he was seen upon, I want you to notice this, these words, the wings of the wind. So we're told that he's seen upon the wings of the wind. Go to Luke 21. Look at verse 27. Luke 21 and verse number 27. I know we're looking at a lot of Bible tonight. And uh, that's, that's why you come to Bible study, I think. Luke 21, look at verse 27. I know so, some of you, you need me to yell and all of that. and I can do that, too. But um, Luke 21, verse 27. I was telling, telling my, I think it was my wife. I was telling somebody recently that, you know, most, most churches, the problem with the church is that if the pastor preaches too hard, the people leave. My, our problem here is if I don't preach hard enough, people leave. You know, like if I don't preach hard enough, they, they, get, they get upset. So I might yell at you a little bit in a second. But, look, but, but study this out. Look, Luke 21, look at verse 27. Notice what he says. Luke 21, verse 27. And then shall they see the Son of Man, notice, 
coming in a cloud. You see that? Coming in a cloud with power and great glory. You say, well, how, how is that similar? Well, we're told that he's writing in 2 Samuel 22, 11, that he, that he uh, was seen upon the wings of the wind. And then in Luke, we're told that he's riding upon a cloud. But these things are all connected. What moves clouds? The wind, you know. And, and here we're told that he's riding upon the wind. He's riding upon the cloud. While you're there in Luke 21, look at verse 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, he's, he, tells, he tells us, he tells the believers, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And by the way, notice the wordings that's being used. Redemption. Usually we use the term redemption when we're talking about salvation, you know, spiritual salvation, getting saved. But I want you to notice that the same terms are used about being saved out of the tribulation period. That's why in Matthew 24, 13, and you don't have to turn there, you'll recognize the verse, but in Matthew 24, 13, when he says, but he that shall endure unto the end shall be saved, he's not talking about spiritual salvation. Because people like to use that verse and say, well, you got to endure unto the end. No, no, no. The context of Matthew 24 is the tribulation period. And he's saying, if you can endure unto the end of the tribulation, you will be saved or delivered or redeemed or rescued out of that trial. That's what we're talking about. So you got to study the Bible in its context. You can't just take a verse out of context and make it say whatever you'd like it to say. Go back to 2 Timothy 22, look at verse 11. Not only did he ride upon the wind or upon the cloud, but I want you to notice something interesting. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is the one part of the psalm that, in my mind, doesn't line up exactly the, the same as the rest of the prophetic writing. And I'll give you the best, uh, you know, the best that I can come up with in regard to as to what is going on here. But, you know, you may have to figure it out on your own. Second Samuel 22, look at verse 11. And he, that's the Lord, rode upon a cherub. You see that word cherub there? And did fly. Now we're told, and I'm not going to take the time. We're, we're going to look at it, some references, but I'm not going to take the time to go all, all of them. A cherub is an angelic being, or not a, 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 a beast. It's referred to as a beast or an animal that is up in heaven, okay? And uh, here we're told that the Lord, when he comes and he shakes the heavens and he shakes the, the, the earth and he rolls the heavens, that he comes riding upon a cherub and, and it tells us did fly or it did fly. Go to Revelation 19 and look at verse number 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. I'll give you the one. The one issue we have with this, and then I'll give you my opinion on it. Revelation 19.11. Revelation 19.11 says this. And I saw heaven open. You see that? Heaven was rolled as a scroll. Heaven was bowed. It was bent. He says, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Now, this is a flying white horse because he's coming from heaven, okay? It says, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. That's not another than the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you study the entire passage, that's very clear. I want you to notice the Bible tells us when Christ comes back at the second coming of Christ, he comes riding upon a white horse. In 2 Samuel 22:11, we're told that he rode upon a cherub. Now, you may say, well, that's a discrepancy. I don't know. I don't think there are discrepancies in the Bible. I just think sometimes we don't understand something or we need to study it out a little better. Let me give you my opinion on it. Go to Ezekiel chapter number 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. Yeah, towards the end of the Old Testament, you got those big major prophets. You got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. 
And you say, why would he call it a cherub in 2 Samuel, which is a heavenly animal, it's a beast. And then he tells us it's a white horse in Revelation 19. I want you to notice something interesting about these cherubs. In Ezekiel chapter 10, you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. At the end, at the end of, the, uh, of, the, of the Old Testament, you got those big major prophets. And we're looking at a lot of prophetic study tonight. I'll make some applications at the end for our lives personally, but I want you to study this out. Ezekiel 10, look at verse 14. Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 14. And every one had four faces. Okay, this is Ezekiel looking up into heaven. He's having a vision where he's basically looking at these heavenly beasts. And I want you to notice how he describes them. And everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. Okay, so he's describing this beast in heaven that has four faces. And I don't know how this works. I, I kind of envision it like, you know, you're having a face here and a face here and a face here and a face here. The only way I, I can really think you get four faces on a head. But it, it tells us that the, this thing had four faces. And the first face was the face of a cherub. What does the face of a cherub look like? I don't know. And the second face was as the face of a man. And the third face as the face of a lion. And the fourth face as the face of an eagle. So you notice you got an eagle, you got a lion, you got a man, and then you've got a cherub. Okay? Now here's what I want you to understand. All those other than the cherub, those three things are found here on earth. A lion, an eagle, and a man. You find all those faces here on earth. But the fourth was that of a cherub. You're there in Ezekiel 10? Go to Ezekiel 41. Look at verse number 18. Ezekiel 41 and verse 18. This beast had four faces in Ezekiel 10 verse 14. I'll tell you, going to the zoos in heaven is going to be a lot of fun. You know, it's going to be very interesting. You're going to be like, is it a giraffe or... You know, it's like a giraffe and a zebra put together. I'm not sure what that thing is. Ezekiel 41, look at verse number 18. Ezekiel 41, 18, look what it says. Ezekiel 41, 18. And it was, and it was made with cherubim and palm trees, so that the palm tree was between a cherub and a cherub. Notice what it says. And every cherub had two faces. Okay, so you've got one beast that has four faces, Four, you know, four faces, one looks like a man, one looks like a lion, one looks like an eagle, one looks like a cherub, whatever that means. And then you got another cherub here that's got two faces. And here's all I'm trying to say is it's very likely that, uh, that the word cherub is probably just a name given to these angelic type animals and there's different types of cherubs. I can't tell you that for sure. I've never been there, okay? Uh, maybe you can go up there and let us know. But, you know, it's very likely that there's probably different types of cherubs. And if I have to take a guess, I would, I would probably guess that a cherub probably looks like a horse. And you've got him riding on a white horse coming down, and it's also called a cherub. If I, and, again, I can't tell you that dogmatically. You, you know, you study it out and let me know what you think. But if I had to take a guess, I'd take a guess that they're up in heaven. There's an animal that looks like a horse, and it's called a cherub. And I will even, someone, someone said this, and I don't, again, I'm just telling you, this is what somebody said, somebody's opinion. I'm not, I'll, I'll never try to lie to you and tell you, hey, the Bible says, and it's just an opinion. But someone said this, and, and we know this to be true. Satan always takes the things from the Bible and mocks at them or makes them, uh, uh, um, you know, for example, the Bible talks about dragons, okay, which I don't have time to get into this, but, you know, people act like, people act like, Oh, a dra I mean, the Bible is so stupid. I mean, could you really believe about uh, of a dragon? Uh, let's see. Uh, big, huge lizard, 
you know, I think you can go to museums and see skeletons of big, huge lizards, you know, that they call dinosaurs today. But just because the Bible didn't use the word dinosaur because the word wasn't even invented until the 1800s, you know, and it's like, and, and people don't want to connect these things. Like, the Bible talks about this big, huge lizard called a dragon. Of course, the Bible is, has to be ridiculous. I mean, how could anybody believe in dragons? We believe in science, so we believe in dinosaurs, which are big, huge lizards. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? You know, and it's like, uh, maybe that's what the dragons were. Maybe that's what they were referring to. And, and, you know, they'll say, well, the Bible talks about unicorns. That's got to be ridiculous. Right, because we don't have any animals on earth that have horns. Right? I mean, there's no way that there could have ever existed an animal that had one horn and they called it a unicorn. That's got to be ridiculous. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. I don't even remember what point I'm trying to make. But, it, but here's what I'm trying to say is they're, they're probably, oh, here's what I wanted to say. Satan will take the animals that are, that are in Scripture and he'll make them, you know, mythological, you know, to mock at God. It's a dragon. It's a unicorn. You know, there's a mythological being, which is a horse with wings, right? Then the Greeks believe in, uh, in some animal, I don't know what it's called, you know, a pegasus, right? A horse with wings. I, there's probably, you know, I would venture to say there's probably a horse in heaven with wings and you call that thing a cherub. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Like I said, that's all opinion, but I want you to notice the discrepancy there for sake of, of, of integrity that we're told in 2 Samuel 22 that he rode upon a cherub and we're told in the book of Revelation that he rode upon a white horse. Maybe he rides the cherub halfway and then gets on the horse. I don't know. Pulls one of those John Wayne things, you know, where he like flips off and gets on. I don't know. Uh, we'll have to uh, wait till we get there. Go to 2 Samuel 22. Look at verse 9. Let me show you something else. 2 Samuel 22. Look at verse number 9. 2 Samuel 22, verse 9. 2 Samuel 22, 9. And, you know, whenever we're looking at prophecy and prophetic type things, we need to be very careful not to be too dogmatic, because the Bible says we look through a glass darkly. Okay, we don't really understand things. One day we'll see it clearly, it'll all make sense. Second uh, Samuel 22, look at verse number 9. I want you to notice how, this, how the Lord is described as he's coming. He's riding on a cherub. He shakes the earth. He shakes the heavens. He rolls the, the, the heavens as a, as a scroll. He's writing down. But I want you to notice in Revelation 22, 9, notice what it says. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth, devoured coals were kindled by it. This is not a description we get in Revelation. But whoever's coming down at the second coming of Christ, which is obviously Christ, has smoke coming out of his nostrils. Okay, get that picture. Smoke coming out of the nostrils, and fire out of his mouth. Look down at verse 13. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. Look at verse 16. And the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were discovered. Of the rebuking of the, notice, of the Lord. That's what we're talking about. Of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Do you see that? Now keep your place there. Go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 30. Remember you were just in Ezekiel? You got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Because we're told that this person coming down and riding upon the earth, that he has smoke coming out of his nostrils, he has fire coming out of his mouth. But I want you to notice what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 30. Look at verse 33. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 33, you got uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Isaiah 30 and verse 33. 
and I don't have time to develop this because I got way too much to go through tonight, but you can study this out on your own. Isaiah 30, verse 33, for Tophet, now Tophet is a picture of hell, or it's referring to hell. You can study that out in scripture. You'll see Tophet, you'll see the valley of the son of Hinnom, all these things are referring to to picturing and referring to hell. Notice what he says. For Tophet is ordained of old. Yea, for the king it is prepared. He hath made it deep and large. The power thereof is fire and much wood. Notice what he says. And the breath of the Lord. Now we know that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We know that's God. We talked about that two weeks ago when we were in 2 Samuel. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go back and listen to that sermon. But notice what he says. The breath of the Lord or the breath of God. Like a steam of, uh, like a stream of brimstone doth kindle it. Here we're told that hell is kindled by the breath of God, which is like fire coming out of his mouth. We're told that God breathed fire. And then we're told that this man, riding upon this angelic beast, coming down to deliver the saints that are in trouble who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ, also has fire coming out of his mouth, also has smoke coming out of his nostrils. What does that tell you? That tells you that Jesus is God. That tells you that it's the one and only. He is the God. He is God. And, and, And it's interesting because you never get that picture of Jesus. When you watch your little Hollywood movies, you know, they always make Jesus look like this effeminate little girl, you know, with his long hair and his blue eyes. And it's like, you know, he's like blonde and blue-eyed. I thought he was a Jew. And I know you recorded the movie in Hollywood, but good night, you know. And it's like they always make him look. But look, here we're told when Jesus comes back, he's riding something crazy. And he's got smoke coming out of his nostrils, breathing fire. The, the description in Revelation 1 of the way he looks, it's amazing. And we won't take the time to look at it. You can look that up, uh, up on your own. But this is an awesome God. This is a, this is a terrible sight. To see, especially if you're on the wrong end of it. And we, and we see the return. We see the return. And we look at the things, how they match. Psalm, tw- uh, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel, t- 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. How they match the prophetic writings where the earth shakes and the heavens shake. And the heavens are rolled as a scroll. And he comes down riding upon this beast. But I want you to notice, not only do we see the return of Christ. We also see, number two, if you can get back to 2 Samuel 22, look at verse 17. We also see the rapture of believers. So we see the return of Christ, and then we see the rapture of believers. You say, where's the rapture? In 2 Samuel 22, look at verse 17. 2 Samuel 22, verse 17. Notice what it says. He sent, he sent from above. We're told in Matthew 24 that he sends his, his elect angels, right? He sends his angels to pick out the elect from off the earth. He sent from above, notice what he says, what David says. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Now, I want you to, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you ought to underline that phrase, many waters. He says, he sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Because I think we've proven, I think we've proven by now that 2 Samuel 22 is definitely prophetic. Wouldn't you say? I don't, I don't know, but I don't think there was ever a time in David's life when the entire earth shook, when the heavens shook, when, they were, when the heavens were bent. You know, I don't think this actually happened during the life of David. I think David is prophesying about future events. And here we are told that he was taken out or he was drawn out of many waters. Now, many waters in prophetic writing is, is, an, is an interesting 
uh, phrase because it actually means something. Let's go to Revelation 17. Let's look at it together. So how do you know what it means? Well, you don't open up a, a commentary and you don't open up a, a website. You just let the Bible be its own dictionary. The Bible describes what it means. Revelation 17. Look at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation 17. You can never go wrong allowing the Bible to define itself. Revelation 17. Look at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation 17, verse 1. And there came out, and there came one of the seven angels, which had seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore. Okay, and that's a sermon for another time about the great whore, about Babylon, and all that. I preached a whole series on that. Uh, you can look that up on our website if you'd like. The great whore, but I want you to notice, that sitteth upon many waters. You see that? That sitteth upon many waters. Underline that many waters there. Because in Revelation 17, 1, we're told that the great whore, that, that, and this is end times writing. He says, sitteth upon many waters. In, in 2 Samuel 22, 17, David says, he sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. You say, well, what does that term many waters mean? Revelation 17, look at verse 15. You're there in Revelation 17, 1. The last part of verse 1 says, the great whore sitteth upon many waters. Revelation 17, 15 defines for us what that term many waters means. Revelation 17, 15, notice what it says. And he saith unto me, and he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest. What waters? The many waters that he said in verse 1. The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. You see that? So what are the waters? According to Revelation 17, 15, what are the many waters? What does that represent? It represents people and multitudes and nations and tongues. Well, go back to 2 Actually, keep your place there in Revelation 17. Go back to 2 Samuel 22, 17. Revelation, uh, uh, 2 Samuel 22, 17. Because remember, we've got the Lord riding upon a beast, shaking the heavens, shaking the earth, coming down. And then what does he do? What does he do? He sent, 2 Samuel 22, 17, he sent from above... He took me, he drew me out of, out of what? He drew me out of many waters. What does that mean? He drew me out of, out of what? Out of peoples, out of multitudes, out of nations, out of tongues. What are you doing? He said, he took me from off the earth. He said, the peoples and the nations and the tongues, I was on many waters, but he drew me out of many waters. What is that? That's the rapture. That's the rapture. You say, well, you know, why is that so important? Here's why that's so important. Because the, the vast majority of Christians today, evangelical Christians and even Baptists, teach a false doctrine called the pre-tribulation rapture. And they teach that the rapture is a secret event where one day, you know, Kirk Cameron's just going down the airport and there's just like, you know, or what, what is it, Nicolas Cage, right? He's riding his plane and then all of a sudden everyone's gone, poof. And they're all like, what happened? Was it aliens? You know, where did they go? But listen to me. The Bible teaches in 2 Samuel 22, and if you don't think that's conclusive enough or clear enough, then you can go to Matthew 24, you can go to Luke 21, you can go to Revelation 6, you can go wherever you want. It's very clear throughout the Bible that Christians aren't just going about their merry way, having vacations, having their 401k, just living worldly and living great and having fun, and then all of a sudden we're all going, no, no. When, when Jesus returns, when we are drawn out, when we are removed from many waters, it is at a time when we are surrounded. It is at a time when we're under distress. It is at a time when we're under affliction. It's called the great tribulation, and I hate to break it to you, believers are going to go through it. 
You're going to go through a time of persecution. You're going to go through a time when things get hard, when things are difficult, when the Antichrist is trying to kill you. And I don't understand this Christianity. It says, you know, it's like, I mean, showing up to church on Wednesday night is a huge sacrifice for me. Wait till the tribulation happens. See if you show up then. And I say, you got people, fall, you know, they're falling out of church because pastor was on the news. Pastor was on the news, and there was all these protesters. If you can't make it, if you can't walk through some protesters, do you think you're going to make it through the tribulation? You think you're going to make it through? Look, I, he's just, that's what he says. If you endure until the end, you will be saved, because some people aren't going to endure until the end. Because I, I hate to break it to you, some people are just too weak to endure until the end. They got no fight in them. They got, there's nothing in them that says, hey, let's do something great for God. You can't even do something great for God in the land of liberty. You can't even do something great for God right now when we can preach whatever we want, when we can knock doors, when we can go out and no one can stop us. I mean, we got freedom of speech. We got freedom of religion. For whatever it's worth, I know America's corrupt, but we've got it, and we do nothing with it now. And you think you're going to do it? You think you're going to stand for it? You think you're going to preach during this time? The only way you get out of the tribulation is when God comes back. The only way that you get drawn out of many waters is he sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Look at verse 18, 2 Samuel 22. Look at verse 18. He delivered me. Again, deliverance is a word that's often associated to salvation, but here he's talking about the rapture. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. See, the Antichrist would win. The Antichrist would win if it wasn't that God comes back and delivers us. He raptures us. He takes us out. Look at verse 19. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. The day of my calamity. See, this, this prosperity gospel, this, you know, name it and claim it, health and wealth, your best life now, you get saved and nothing bad's ever going to, that's a bunch of garbage. You know, why didn't anybody ever preach that to Paul while he was getting beaten? Why didn't anybody ever preach that to Paul while he was being arrested? Why didn't anybody pre- preach that to Paul when he's getting, you know, when, when Paul was getting stoned to death, he, he was probably thinking to himself, I thought I was supposed to live the good life now. You know, he, look, there's days of trials coming. There's calamity coming. There, there are hard times coming. I, I, we, I, we don't want to lie to you about it. We want to prepare you for it. We want to tell you to get strong, to be strengthened spiritually. Physically, emotionally, whatever you need. Look at verse 19. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, uh, calamity but the Lord was my stay. He's, he's who I trusted in. He's who gave me the support. Look at verse 20. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me. He delivered me. Why? Notice what he said. I, I, like, I like this part. He delivered me because I was so righteous. Is that what he says? He delivered me because I was just his favorite person. Is that what he says? He, de- he delivered me because I was so good, because I was so religious, because I, I just earned it. No, he delivered me because he delighted in me. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Look, look at verse, go to Revelation 4, look at verse 11. I, I got to hurry up. We're not going to make it through the whole thing. Revelation 4, we'll get as far as we can, and we'll move on. Next week, we'll be in 2 Samuel 23, all right? We won't spend another week in there. So, uh, look at Revelation 4, look at verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure, for thy pleasure, they are and were 
created. You know how you were created for God's pleasure? And it is because he delighted in you that he saved you, either out of the tribulation period or just salvation in general. We do not get saved because of anything in and of ourselves. We get saved simply because he delighted in us. It's like I think of my daughter Ruth. You know, Ruth's uh, two months old. And Ruth's never done anything for me. You know that? I mean, she doesn't help me with anything, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm, when I'm having, taking the, the, the groceries out of the van, she doesn't offer to help. I mean, there's no, nothing. She just lays there. <laughs> you know, in her car seat. And it's like, Ruth, you want to help me with the, bringing these groceries? Just look at me. And, and, and you say, well, you know, do you hold that against her? No, I love her to death. Why? She never done anything for you. I just delight in her. I just love her because she's my daughter. Even if she never helped me with the groceries. Even if she never did, I just love her because it's just the relationship we have. I just love her, and that's, and that's God. He doesn't love you because of anything you've ever done. He loves you because you're his son, because you're his daughter, because he, he saved you, because he delighted in you. Now, you've got to make that point, because I want you to notice what he says after that. Look, look, at, uh, look at 2 Samuel 22, look at verse 20. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me. He delivered me because he delighted in me, okay? My deliverance is not connected to my performance. My deliverance is not connected to what I do. My deliverance is not connected to my righteousness. But then he says this, 21, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. See, here's, here's what you have. You have, number one, the return of Christ. Then you have the rapture of the believer. But then you know what you have? You have the rewards of the saints. You have the rewards. Now he starts talking about the rewards. But I want you to notice what, what the rewards are connected to. You do not get to heaven because of your good works, but you do get rewarded in heaven because of your good works. Do you understand that? You do not get to heaven because of your righteousness, but you do get rewarded in heaven for your righteousness. Look at verse 21. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. And you say, how do you know this is prophetic? Here's how I know it's prophetic. Because during the reign of Christ, and we're going to look at it here in a minute, during the reign of Christ, when we go into the reign of Christ, the Bible says we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And we are, our, our, our position during that reign is based on our rewards. So the chronological you know, agenda of end times is the tribulation, is the rapture, and then you've got to have the, the judgment seat of Christ or the reward time of believers before you go into the millennial reign of Christ because during the millennial reign of Christ is when you're exercising those rewards. You understand what I'm saying? So this is why it's put in this order because this is end times. He talks about the return. He talks about the rapture. Then he talks about the rewards. Notice what he says. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. He's going to reward you in heaven based on how clean your hands are. I don't have time to deliver because I'm running out of time. But the idea of cleansing your hands, look, look that, that out in the Bible. You know, James talks about cleanse ye, your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. The idea of cleansing your hands is the things you do. See, you can get to heaven and you can watch whatever filth you want on TV. You can just do whatever you want. You can live however you want. You can skip out on church. You can skip out on Bible reading. You can just, uh, you know, fornicate. Look, you can do whatever you want and still be saved because we're not saved by our works. And if you think, well, I'll lose my salvation based on something that I did, then you're trusting in yourself. 
Because I'm saved as long as I don't commit adultery. I'm saved as long as I don't fornicate. I'm saved as long as I don't do drugs. Now listen to me. Those things are bad. Upon this earth, you will reap what you sow. Upon this earth, God does chastise his children. There will come a day when Ruth will be old enough to understand the difference between good and bad. And when she disobeys, I'll have to discipline her as her father. Why? Because I love her. And on this earth, God does the same thing to you. And God does the same thing to me. But listen to me. In heaven... In heaven, you are rewarded based on how holy and righteous you lived your life. I mean, he says, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. Look at verse 22. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him, and I have kept myself from mine iniquity. I was talking about sin. Therefore the Lord hath recompensed me according to my righteousness. You were not saved by your righteousness, but you're recompensed according to your righteousness. You're paid. You're rewarded according to my cleanness in his eye, in his eyesight. See, he talks about the rewards, and he says, hey, hey, you better be careful. You better be careful. Go to 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5. we got to move quickly. I need to be done in one minute. Okay, that's not going to happen. But I'll, be, I'll try to be done soon. 2 Corinthians 5. Let's move quickly. 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Whenever you preach about end times, it always takes longer. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Notice what he says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the, 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 the judgment of believers. That everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. See, these people are already in heaven. It's, it's the judgment seat of Christ. If you're there, it's because you're saved. There's a difference between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne. I don't have time to go into that. You can study that out on your own. Great white throne is for unbelievers. Judgment seat of Christ is for believers. These people are already in heaven, but they do get rewarded based on the way that they lived their life, the things that were done in his body. According to that, he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So we see the return. We see the rapture. We see the reward. Keep your place there in 2 Corinthians 5. Okay, we're going to come right back to it. Keep your place in 2 Corinthians 5. Go back uh, to, to 2 Samuel 22. I, I, I don't have time to go through the rest of this, but I just want you to notice the fourth thing is the reign of Christ. We saw the return of Christ, and we saw the rapture of believers. We saw the reward of the saints, and then we see the reign of Christ. Notice, notice what he says. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have time to go through all of it, all of it but uh, look, look at verse, look at verse 44. 2 Samuel 22, verse 44. 2 Samuel 22, verse 44. Thou also hast delivered me from the strivings of my people. Thou hast kept me to be head of the heathen. Now, the word heathen is translated in the New Testament as Gentiles. That's what he's talking about, Gentiles, non-Jews. He says, Thou hast kept me to be the head of the heathen, a people which I knew not shall serve me. Strangers shall submit themselves unto me. Look at verse 50. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee. This is actually quoted in Romans, and it's quoted, the word heathen is quoted Gentiles. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, I will sing praises unto thy name. Here's what he's talking about. There's coming a reign. There's coming a kingdom that will not be for Jews only because David was living during the kingdom, which it was a Jewish kingdom. He's saying there's coming a, a kingdom that will be for all the heathen as well. You're the heathen. I'm the heathen. All the Gentiles. A kingdom. 
And if you, and if you study Revelation, you'll see that it said the nations of them that are saved will come into that city, into New Jerusalem. So we see the reign of Christ. Go back to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11. Uh, and let me, we'll, we'll finish up right here. You say, what, what is the point, what is the purpose of studying end times? Why do we study that? Why do you give out that DVD after the tribulation? And if some of these things didn't make sense to you tonight, see me after service. We want to give you that DVD after the tribulation. It's a documentary, and it goes through and thoroughly kind of gives you a 101 on the rapture and what the Bible teaches. And we want you to know this. You say, well, what is the point, what is the purpose of learning about end times? And the purpose is found in 2 Corinthians 5. Because remember verse 10, we talked about the judgment seat of Christ, right? But look at verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. I mean, isn't there terror in the Lord? I mean, when Jesus Christ is coming back and he's got fire coming out of his mouth and smoke coming out of his nostrils and he's riding some animal that we don't know what it is, kind of looks like a horse, but it's got wings and he's flying and he's got the armies of the saints behind him and the earth is shaken and there's thunders and there's lightning and all. I mean, there's knowing the terror of the Lord. It's going to be a terrible time. No one's going to be saying, I wonder what happened. They're going to know. <laughs> they'll know. Now notice what he says. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. Why do we go out and knock on doors every Sunday, every Thursday, every Sunday? Why do we do what we do? Here's why we do it. Because we know the terror of the Lord. See, the purpose of studying the end times is not to just get a big old head and say, well, I know what's going to happen. You know, with my big old prophetic head. I'm going to go school all these other Baptists that don't know. No, no, no. The whole point, the whole point of studying end times, the whole point of studying end times is to give you a clear perspective of the end. Just, just watch me. Just, just watch this. Everybody look up here. This, this right here. This, you see this point right here? There's not actually a point there. I'm just, I'm just doing it like this. Right? See this point right here? This from right here to right here, that's your life. From this point, you're born. This point, you die. That's your life right there. You see that little, right there, bulletin says, the, the verse in the bulletin, your life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and vanishes away. From this point right here to this point, that's your life. You know what eternity is? Eternity is from this point right here, from that point where your life ends. How, how far do I have to go to make my point? Uh, th th that, that analogy doesn't even work because I, I, I could run around this building 20 times and, and it wouldn't work because eternity never ends. And here's what you need to understand. This is judged on this. The, the rewards here. The, 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 the how you live here, the, 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 the great stories and enjoyment, the fact that you'll be able to say, I live. All of this for you will be based on this. And so many of us are living for this, forgetting about this. Well, I got to make money here. Why here? Well, I got to just do what I want right here. I mean, it's this. This is your life right here. This is eternity. See, end times prophecy teaches us this. I better learn to live for this. Not undo this or regret this at the expense of this. Because your life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Why do we study end times? So you can go and school your pastor. On. No. So you can get the proper perspective and realize, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your 
times. Let's bow our heads and have a little prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these passages in Scripture, Lord. I know that maybe we might have gone a little deeper tonight than, than normal, and I know this crowd loves your word and wants to study the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would always help us to live for eternity. Help us to realize that life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and vanishes away. Help us to keep the proper perspective. There are so many Christians wasting the rewards that they could have in eternity because they're living for 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. They're giving their value to this life today. Lord, I pray you'd help us to live with the proper perspective that we learn from unpackers, from studying the unpackers, from realizing there's more to this world than what we see. I love you, Lord. In your precious name I pray.